Hello and welcome. This is your host, Jonathan Morgan, and you're listening to Design Everywhere, the podcast that invites you to ask what if and challenges you to understand the why that drives design. Our world is filled with information. It's all around us. It's everything we see, feel, hear, smell, touch, and taste. But how do we transform myriad discrete bits of information into something we can use, something meaningful, That's what we're going to explore in today's conversation with Stephen P. Anderson, the co-author of Figure It Out, Getting from Information to Understanding, and founder of the Mighty Minds Club. Here's our conversation. This is the first part of a two-part conversation I'm going to have with Stephen. He's a really interesting guy and has a lot going on, so we want to kind of hit a couple different things. So uh, we decided to break this up into two. So today's topic, we're going to focus on a book he co-wrote with Carl Fast called Figuring It Out, Getting from Information to Understanding, and more specifically about how we move from information to understanding. So welcome, Stephen. Great to be here. Excellent. So I like to kind of start things off, kind of taking a step back. So this isn't the first book you you published and uh, you've been creating kind of learning methods and tools for quite a while. Most notably, the mental notes. I think that might even be the first place that I was uh, kind of introduced to some of your work. Maybe you can tell me a little bit and tell our, our listeners a little bit about your background and kind of what led you to this current focus. So going back, my early career was actually as a high school English teacher, teaching gifted and talented students and uh, high school English, like I mentioned. And I only did that for about three years. But I think, you know, they say once a teacher, always a teacher. And so I think even though I got into UX via dot com in the late 90s, I think, you know, fast forward 10 years later, I started speaking and doing workshops and things. And I think it's just that teacher coming out in me wanting to figure things out and share with others the the things I'm synthesizing or learning. And so I think that theme has been threaded throughout everything I've done. And the mental notes card deck that you mentioned kind of married several interests. So at the time, I was very interested in human psychology and human behavior and why do people do the things they do and why don't people do the things we want them to do and, and all of this. And I was reading, gosh, just a whole variety of books from you know, behavioral economics to just social sciences, just psychology in general. And more from my own reference, I started keeping all of these uh, notes on different ideas and principles and writing them down on index cards. And uh, that eventually became the Mental Notes card deck that I self-published. And that was about a year before my first book was published, which was Seductive Interaction Design, which also looked at these principles and said, you know, hey, if we looked at uh, web apps and websites through the lens of a dating analogy, how are they doing? And, you know, I think, especially at the time, very poorly was the answer <laughs> if we looked at it in terms of a conversation or an interaction with another human being. So since that time and the intervening 10 years, my growth in or within design has shifted a bit where as I, you know, first was a consultant and then was the chief experience officer at a small startup, as I started uh, shifting in different roles and ways, I became increasingly interested in how you shape culture and how you create the organization or the culture that in turn creates great products and great experiences. And so that was what I picked up at the startup I was at. And then when I joined uh, a large financial services company here in the U.S., that was uh, I got a chance to continue learning more about how do you shape culture for the better. And that's um, I think that's led me to where I'm where I'm at now. It makes a lot of sense coming from kind of a 
early origins coming from an educator, you know, formally trained and in, in working out as a teacher. This idea, I mean, it, it seems so simple and plain on the surface, you know, transforming information into understanding. But really, you know, as we dig into it, it it's some complex stuff, but it's really, uh, you know, kind of the process of looking through it is, is really enlightening. Maybe you can, like in kind of your own words, the premise of the book and really this idea of this transformation, maybe you can kind of give us a, a sense and our listeners a sense of as what we mean and kind of that that primary premise of, of what you're communicating through the book. Yeah, and that, and that was actually, just to be candid, that was something I think uh, Carl, my co-author, and I both struggled with was how to pitch it because it, it was so, it is so broad in its focus, and yet it is in some ways narrow. It's like, how do we get from information to understanding? And so I think the subtitle says a lot, but I think the phrase that we fell on probably in the last year of writing the book that you'll see sprinkled throughout various chapters is how do we work with information as a material, as a raw material, as a resource? You know, we, we say it in different ways. And I think that's what's missing from a lot of the conversations and the discussions around information is just how to work with it. And uh, that's where, if I was to just give a high-level summary of the book, and, and this structure actually took many years to emerge, and through writing and dialogue and discussion, it, <laughs> and a lot of our own learning, the, the structure that eventually emerged was, okay, we need to work with information or learn to work with information by thinking about prior associations that are activated. So I'm using language right now. I might use metaphors and analogies. I'm activating associations in the minds of everyone listening, right? So prior associations is a big upfront section. And then we talk about, okay, what happens when we bring ideas into the world and give them form? That could be on a screen. It could be a physical model, tangible things. But that's the kind of the second strand, which is external representations. So ideas take form, and then we can move them around, interact with them, do things with them, which is the third section, interactions, epistemic interactions, which I believe you're going to be talking to Carl specifically about. And then the, the fourth section is really, okay, how do we coordinate those things? How do we, you know, they never happen in isolation. In fact, they're always happening together. So how do we actually coordinate the system of uh, cognitive activities? And so that's really, at a high level, that's the, the gist of the book. It's interesting how it all comes together because, I mean, it, it really, we look at information and it's in kind of varying degrees of focus. Like you might have data and data is very raw. Information might be, there might be some meaning there. There might be a little bit more meat to it, but it's bringing those things together. And you talk about associations. It's really about bringing those, those concepts and those bits of pieces together to cr create more meaning. And I think that that's another thing that kind of comes out of it is that it's a very individual effort. Meaning is very personal and very individual. Yes, and So yeah, I think that's how we spend the bulk of the book is saying that the understanding that we construct is very personal and very individual. In fact, we make a comment about upfront, you know, as you make uh, uh, notes in the margin of the book, you are bringing your own understanding, your own reflection to the book. Where we land though near the end is when we start talking about coordinating these cognitive activities, these cognitive resources, we start looking beyond just the level of the individual or a group of people and say, say, what happens when it's a team or an organization or scientists working around the world, say, to, you know, find a cure for the coronavirus, right? When we talk about a distributed system of cognitive resources, then it's not just the ones in front of me and at my desk. It can be uh, the knowledge and the information resources that are spread throughout other individuals and other people. And 
on one hand, it is very different. On the other hand, it's everything we've talked about up to that point in the book, just turned or, or, or looked at through a different lens. Early on, right when the book came out, I tweeted something about this where, I, you know, like I've had, you know, I, I was a student of Carl's and uh, kind of had lots of conversations with him in the past and, and kind of seeing some of the information and the, you know, some of the, the things that we had talked about. And I had mentioned like, you know, it, it kind of flipped a switch in my brain and he was quick to come back. And it's just like, that's the central premise in this book is it's not just about the brain. It's mm-hmm. like our brain is a perceptual organ, as you guys put it, that we're taking in information, but it's about bringing those concepts together. At least to me, it starts to, I guess, help me make more sense of how understanding actually does come into view, I guess. It's, it's about the process as, as much as it is the actual things that we see. Well, you know, you hit upon something uh, just a few minutes ago as I was I was explaining something. I checked myself for a moment. Like, did I say mind or brain? Mind or brain? I said mind, so that was good. But it's this thing we have to check ourselves on a lot as we um, tend to talk about the brain as the center of thinking and, and cognition and where it happens. And that's not, there's this idea now outdated that, you know, the brain equals the mind, the mind equals the brain, which we kind of pull the rug out from under that concept, right, in the second chapter, where we say, look, what we think of as the mind is this coordination of of various activities. So yes, the brain has a perceptual organ, but also our body inside an environment with other people or other objects. And that's really where thinking happens and occurs um, in and through these interactions with ideas and whether they're given form or they're just, you know, conversation uh, like we're having right now using words and language. When it comes to language, it, it, it is sometimes difficult. And I'm a designer myself, thinking of how we need to communicate things and how we translate some of this understanding or at least design things that need to be understood. We kind of have to use this arsenal of narratives, of visual, and kind of tying all of that together. And I think that the act of communication and the act of trying to turn what we're trying to do into something that can be understood is is difficult and it's difficult to kind of piece those things together. You do touch quite a bit in the book around the importance of visual for communication and that we're we're very visual beings, I guess. Like to use that sense or 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 lean on that sense more than others. Oh, absolutely. That that's actually for me, that's where the book started was thinking about visual models and concept models and all the artifacts that we as designers like to create to illustrate or communicate concepts. And I knew going into it that was going to be a big part of the book, but I also knew I didn't want to write a book like um, there there are lots of good, very tactical books out there about how to create charts or diagrams or how tactically to communicate an idea. And I didn't want to duplicate work that had already been done, but I wanted to dig a bit deeper and say, well, why is this? Why, as a human creature, is our sense of vision more efficient or more effective than the other senses we have? Which, by the way, aren't just five. There's something like two dozen, right? <laughs> and um, and so that's that was the start for me. And I think even before, even while I was still working on my first book, I had done a workshop in London on how to create concept models trying to explain my process. And even at that point, I was still figuring out for myself, how do I create a concept model and why are concept models uh, so effective for for distilling a complex idea into something that other people can understand? And so I think that was the beginnings of this book. But then, you know, fast forward five, six years later, around, I guess, 2013, 
And I was very interested in stories and narratives and why they work. And that led me into this whole branch of uh, just the brain as a perceptual organ and how it constructs narratives and constructs stories. And I think I gave a talk at one of the IA summits talking about that and actually uh, brought people on the state onto the stage to represent different uh, neurons firing together and show how the brain is an associative pattern matching organ. And that was actually, there's a lot of good ideas in there. There were also things I had to unlearn uh, because I think I was very much rooted at that point or that time that the brain is, you know, where, where it makes all these connections. And it's like, well, there's, there's more to the story. And uh, you'll notice we, we uh, focus on the, the phrase, uh, prior associations, which early on, early drafts of the book, um, I had actually used the phrase internal representations, which, you know, just coming in from the outside may seem like not much of a difference, but as you dig into a lot of the literature around embodied cognition and how we think this, that there is a big distinction around whether the brain has these internal representations, or is it just uh, activating a bunch of these prior associations that we've accumulated throughout our life and our life experiences. But yeah, to go back to your initial comment, the visual was where all of this started for me. I think it's interesting when you bring up the prior associations. I think that might have been kind of part of what I was thinking when I mentioned earlier about, you know, like your brain is a perceptual organ and and understanding is a very personal and unique, unique to yourself. And I think that's leading to those prior associations. Everybody has their own prior associations that is unique to them because that's their experience in life, right? Yeah, an example I use in the book is the iceberg. You know, we have a lot of slides that show an iceberg and the concept that's represented is there's the stuff we see above the waterline, but below the waterline, there's all these things that are unseen. And the more you think about that, it's, I doubt very many of us actually seen an iceberg, right? We've just <laughs> seen pictures of the of icebergs. So we've grown up hearing about icebergs and all the stuff under the water you can't see. And so for us, that's a concept we formed probably at an early age, and it only means something if you've encountered that concept or that idea. And once you start thinking about it in that way, then it's not so much the fact that I just drew an iceberg on the whiteboard or I used a picture of an iceberg in my presentation. It's the concept, right? It's the prior associations that have been activated. And when you, once you become aware of that, then you can start to think and say, well, what are the associations I'm going to make or invoke that people won't get or they're going to think differently because they have a different background? It's not just cognitive stuff like analogies and metaphors, but it can be, uh, well, one of the studies that it didn't make its way into the book, but it's really stuck with me, was there was a study where they looked at, I don't know if you've seen this optical illusion where they'll draw a line and have, in version A of the line, it's like uh, arrows on either end. And then version B, it's like the arrows have been inverted, so it's like two Ys, so you kind of form the image there, right? And it's something that's been used to talk about how we perceive when the when the lines are facing outward versus inward. We perceive that line, even though it's exactly the same in A and B, we perceive it as being longer. And so this has been studied, you know, as one of these optical illusions, you know, things that reveals how our brains work, right, for some time. And the study that Carl pointed me to was just questioning some of the weird, weird being. When you step back and say, well, let's test some folks who are outside of our normal you know, culture that we normally include and what happens. And what they found was when they shared these same images with a tribe who maybe hadn't grown up or hadn't didn't live in a square rectangular room, that the effect didn't work. And so suddenly subtle things like you look in your room right now and there you see like we're in a box, right? We, <laughs> Our houses by and large are boxes. So we grow up with this association of things being shorter 
or longer based on perspective and the the environments we grew up in. We would never even think about that in the way we think about like a, a metaphor or an analogy, but that is a prior association based on the perception of distance and you know length that and then informs this study. And so that kind of stuff just really blew my mind. And suddenly I started <laughs> questioning, what are all the prior associations I've grown up with just on nature of being who I am, where I've grown up, where I've not been, you know, that are unique to me. And I don't know that in in many ways, that's kind of how I backed into uh, diversity and inclusion was thinking about cognitive diversity and how, you know, you, Jonathan, your experiences are different than mine, different from Carl's. And yet we have a very similar set of experiences relative to people from completely different cultures, completely different backgrounds, completely different ethnicities and so on, different experiences. And I think once you can see that and recognize that and then figure out how to respect those differences, but incorporate them on a, in a team structure where you're working towards the same shared intent, that's powerful, powerful stuff. We and people like us are the people who are designing the things for everyone to use, too. So like that, I, I think of that, and I, I've had a number of different conversations throughout the season that it keeps kind of coming back to that, the need for those diverse points of view, because it's not easy to make good decisions if you don't have those prior associations, those that you can look back to that are really going to cover the gamut of all the people that are going to be using the thing that you're creating. You know, we're talking kind of theoretically at this point, but to put a face on this, um, there was a Brian over at Zurb. He had put forth kind of a survey. He showed five options for ways people could render a user interface on a mobile screen. I think I think the context was basically card sorting. So picking valuables and putting them into buckets. And how do you translate that into the constrained environment of a mobile interface? And he had five options he had mocked up. And I remember one or two of them were really interesting. I think probably the ideal interaction, like in terms of what it would afford and the possibilities, it's where I would put my money. However, one of them was more conventional and familiar. And you know, then you're left with this thing, what, what's familiar? What are most people going to recognize and therefore have fewer usability problems with versus which one is, even if it's better, is also novel and people are going to struggle with. And that, I don't know that I would have thought of that five years ago, if I wasn't thinking about prior associations and expectations of how people, how things will work, you know, now we're talking about affordances, right? Perceived affordances, but that's, you know, after researching and writing the book, now I'm thinking about what are the associations that people have when I try to either communicate an idea or when I'm trying to communicate through an interface, how something might work, what are those associations and how can we, how can we determine what those are and what, what has shaped those associations? What other apps, what other experiences have people have that have set the expectation? And then of course you're left with a conundrum. Do we push for the better novel experience or go with the familiar one? And you've got to make a call there as a, as a business or product owner, what's the safe bet? Sounds like as you're going through this, you're, you learn through the process of, of creating this book and it, now it's, it sounds like it's tough for you to shake those associations in just all, everything that you do. You know, kind of like what you were saying, having a conversation with someone, and now you're thinking about prior associations, how is this going to be interpreted? It does give you kind of a, a different perspective. I would say it, it has been transformative for me learning and writing this and just how I see and interact with the world now. Very different. In fact, I uh, think in the opening, I got the book in front of me here, I, I dedicate it to my boys and I say, read this book carefully. 
and you'll understand how the world works. <laughs> and I don't promise they'll know how to fix the world or anything. That's not a promise <laughs> of the book, but at least you'll understand how and why the world works. And, and I kind of meant that. Like, as I got to the end of it, I was like, wow, this, you really start to understand the root sources or causes of a lot of disagreements and innovations and all sorts of things because we're getting at how people understand or make sense of information, which is something we've been doing for a long, long, long time. <laughs> we can look at the concepts that, that you present here and just this idea of like using space to hold meaning. It's like, okay, we do that every day. Like we, mm -hmm. the, the stuff that you, you do without even thinking about it, you're like, oh yeah, I guess I do do that. It is about understanding it. And an example you give in the book is just like, I have a recipe, so I'm going to take everything out and I'm going to organize it on my table. I might organize it a certain way. Someone else might organize it another way. I just bake muffins over the weekend. And, you know, I put all my dry ingredients in one space and I organize these things and it helps me keep track of things. So I'm kind of using my space as a way of thinking through my process and desired outcome, I think, to a degree too. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that. We're talking a lot about theory, but we also want it to be very pragmatic and we wanted people to see how these things show up in everyday activities. And so the examples there were a range of examples that that we use and draw upon. And one of those was just cooking. I think we also used in the same chapter how we organize a closet. Mm. And the point there was in these, whether organizing a closet or interacting with ingredients and moving things around as we use them, whatever it may be on the kitchen counter, um, we are using space to hold meaning. And uh, the I think with literal things like that, we do it almost instinctively just because that's how we've been brought up. The trick is when you start to talk about concepts, like let's sort the team or, or organize the team based on performance, these abstract things that you're trying to make tangible in some way. That's where a lot of people struggle and they're like, I don't know how to do this. And so one of the things I wanted to do with that section was really break down that, that fear or that anxiety about how to do that and say, look, if you can organize your closet, which I know you can, or if you can sort laundry, which I know you can, then we can do this. You can come up with your own model for sorting and organizing people or concepts or ideas or whatever it may be. Let's just break down that barrier between using space for literal things and using space for conceptual things. Just the end of that story, you tied those back to someone's prior association too. So if, if you can do this, then we can also do this. So if you can organize your sock drawer, I can teach you the concepts of organizing something else as it relates to, you know, I'm thinking of like connecting this to design. Like I've always thought like doing a case study on the information architecture of your dresser drawer, or your sock drawer, or your underwear drawer, t-shirts or whatever can work as a good learning tool to have people kind of understand, yeah, it's the same thing as, you know, creating a taxonomy for an e-commerce site or something like that. Like fundamentally, there's a connection between those two. You know, it's interesting. I think we met at one of the IA conferences and I've attended the Information Architecture Summits and now conference for years. And I don't know that I ever identified as an IA, but I've always said I'm very analytical. But recently, because of a series of things, I've realized just how much I love to classify things or put things into buckets or into taxonomies. And, you know, they don't have to have hard edges. They can have fuzzy edges and overlap, but I love to organize thoughts in some meaningful way. And that's, I think that's going all the way back to concept models in the mid-2000s to present, that's, I think, just that desire to organize thinking into some structured, <laughs> meaningful way has been there all along. And I'm just becoming more aware of how much of an 
information architect, I am in, in all things, but mostly with concepts and ideas. Example, something I'm working on right now, I was thinking about different crisis scenarios. This is for an upcoming talk I'm going to be giving. And I was, as I was listing different kinds of, of crisis, you have things like, uh, you know, the looming climate crisis, which is a very ex- existential one. But then you have what's going on with the exposure of systemic racism, right, throughout our systems. And I put that in the crisis bucket, but I was like, that's a different kind of crisis. That would be something like a simmering crisis where it's been there, it's heated at such a slow pace for so long that many of us haven't felt it, and now it's boiling over, right? So simmering crisis versus a an existential or looming crisis versus a present crisis, which would be like the pandemic, for example. But just that desire to start to organize and say, not all crises, crises or crises are created the same. Let's structure these and think about these. And, and then once we do that, then we can think about how to respond and how to address them, and how to talk about them. Because you can't talk about you know, those three topics, for example, in the same way. They are different, even though they all are a type of crisis. Yeah. And it, I think it's interesting because I, I, I also like with most of the things that I do in the, with respect to design, I really like to start with concept models or conceptual modeling of just to, for me to get a better understanding of the space. So starting to pull out piece, different pieces of what is a larger system and try to bring connections together and things like that. It really helps me think through it. It becomes more of a 50-50, I think. I think part of it is the artifact after that is a good way to communicate that. But for me, it's it's a way of thinking through doing. Some of the the premise of the book too is is that's my way creating that that model is my way of understanding. Absolutely. I'm gonna nerd out here for a moment. Um, you may know from reading the book or just from conversation in the past. So Carl and I both love uh, board games, tabletop games, and that of course worked its way into the book. But one of the things I've become aware of on this taxonomy thread is that when you talk about how to use cards, whether it's in a game or in something like the Mental Notes card deck or all of these knowledge cards that we have out there, I have yet to find anyone who's done an exhaustive or comprehensive look at the ways that you can use cards in combination with each other. And so it's simple things like um, if you play a game like Timeline, the fundamental structure is, is sequencing these cards. You're trying to sequence them on a timeline. That's that's the challenge of the game. But then you have other games where um, I, I recently played the Arkham Horror or Living court Card game, and you'll have two cards side by side that you flip over. And so there's, there's a pattern there where you've got an A side and a B side to each of the cards. And then the cards are put side by side as pairs. And one is like the threat level of the game. And the other is like your success or your movement, your progress through the game as a hero, right? So you've got a pattern there. And then you've got other times where you might have one card that's, uh, say, a recipe or an index to the other cards that follow. So I got this yoga deck uh, back last year, mainly because of this pattern, right, where most of the yoga deck is all of these yoga poses and things you can do. But then up front, there's their recipe cards. I think that's what they call them. And they have a recipe for beginners where it says, okay, you should pick out cards 3, 7, 21, 48, right? And that's and then there's a recipe for advanced. But, and so anyway, just that that coupling between sort of these index cards versus the rest of them. And I've started keeping notes of these on these, and I'm creating my own sort of taxonomy for how to use cards, mostly so that I can share that and it will up the game on everyone creating cards. Because I see a lot of people just put information on it, but not think about all the different kinds of structures and ways that we can use these tangible, discrete units of information 
collectively or, or in a coordinated fashion. So I don't know, just nerding out there that that's something that um, as I'm very interested in making physical, tangible things to think with, cards being a, a big part of that and just being able to step back and assess the properties that cards afford and how they can be used. Um, it's, I don't know, it's something I'm kind of excited about right now. I think it's a just a logical extension of the whole conversation we're having here because there's a tangible aspect to it. There's the modularity of it being able to move it around. I think of like even like affinity diagramming and stuff like that. We do, you know, kind of on a regular basis in the type of work that I'm doing and a lot of people who, who listen to this do. It becomes a way to kind of manipulate that information in a way that is far more tangible. And I think cards afford you that freedom to do that. Yeah. And the more more we can talk about things like cards in that way, then we stop seeing them as, not that there's anything wrong with this, but we, we see them less as a game or a playful thing or something light. And we actually see, wow, this is a really powerful way to hold and reflect on knowledge. It's a... A, a stack of cards is a powerful cognitive resource. Why don't we have more of them? Why, why do we keep publishing books? Maybe we should publish card decks, right? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> do more yeah. of these things, right? It's a, a different way to interact and think about information. Yeah, just like like short bursts and interactive, and not in the what a lot of people think is traditionally interactive is digital. No, like real traditionally interactive, which is physical. Absolutely. Every time you shuffle those cards in your hand, you're interacting with them to see new patterns. Yep. And even just the the potential to to randomize, to do different things, shuffle them in different ways. Um, you can kind of randomly make associations that you almost artificially make associations that you wouldn't have made yourself. And that gets you thinking in a different way. It gives you a, a different perspective. Absolutely. You got any card decks in uh, in the near future? Making or getting? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, either. I was thinking making, but... Uh. Uh, not a, in my near future. I do collect... I, I'm big on like like principles and constraints, anything like that, things that are universal. I do like on a project-by-project basis, we will do exercises where we do kind of mashups between constraints and principles and things like that and really try to push, generate, evaluate, the things that we're creating. So I guess in a sense, it's there, but in the sit down and, and create and, and publish wasn't on my radar, but. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to reframe things and maybe you'll see new new possibilities. Absolutely, absolutely. You know, we uh, there's a, a workshop, more of a self-awareness workshop that I've done in the past based on cognitive behavior therapy. And one of the key ideas there is to separate the facts of what actually happened from the beliefs, what you believe happened. And we had gone through previous versions of this and just had examples on a slide and all. And it was one of those moments as I was um, reflecting on those examples, I'm like, okay, one, these are easy examples, but the things people are grappling with where they struggle are not easy. So let's A, use those examples. And then B, rather than tell people whether it's a fact or a belief, why don't we put all these on a card and let's turn the idea of a card sort into a game. And so in the workshop, we would have, uh, we would hand out a stack of cards and we would say, you know, some of these are facts, some of these are beliefs, you've got to figure it out. And, you know, there, there were some that were easy, but then there were some where the table would sit and debate and discuss, is this a fact or is this a belief? And at the end of it, 
you know, it didn't even matter whether it was a right or wrong answer. It was the dialogue and the discussion that was fostered at the table that was so powerful where people were debating, no, I think this is a belief because, you know, you've got these perceptions and this, well, I think it's a fact and here's why. And that, I don't know, as a workshop facilitator, to see people engage with the material in that way, it was thrilling and exciting. And that's just another in a whole line of experiences I've had where I see the power of these card decks and games and things to get people to engage with learning and engage with understanding in a way that's highly relevant and highly personal. Yeah, that's really interesting and really important point. And I see that a lot with, like, I facilitate a lot of, of workshops, more project-based workshops, um, really on a, a regular basis, doing that either with clients or, you know, their potential customers or whatever. But a lot of the activities are, you know, kind of 50-50 what you want to get out of it. The other one is to really get people understanding the context, getting people to understand more than just what we're trying to achieve as a goal, you know, more concrete goal coming out of that session. It's it's the activity that brings teams together and makes for better outcomes because I think there's a shared sense of responsibility when you go through that. Like you're you're in the trenches working through that. And I think the more tangible we can make those conversations, even in the time of everything's a video conference, using Miro, using Mural, using tools to take all the thinking out of our heads and direct verbal conversation into that's that's work around on this on this virtual whiteboard and and work this out. Well, the power there is everyone who's involved then is a co-author in the outcome and has been there along the way, which saves so much time. You don't have to do the big reveal, the big pitch. You don't have to sell people. It's like, nope, we were there all along. We were part of, we were co-authors in the solution. So let's just keep moving. And you create advocates. You create proxies for that message that you don't have to be the one that's constantly preaching it. It's being evangelized. Absolutely. You figured it out together. <laughs> exactly. So back to the book and just kind of closing out on this. The, I, I know with a book, it's like, it's kind of tough. You get to the end, it's probably a challenge to start to wrap it up and say, you know, we're done. Let's finish this up. Let's get it published. Now that it's out there, is there anything that you look back on that you kind of wish you dug into further or you want to dig into further that, that you feel like you can take it? one level deeper. Yes. And it, actually, it's more of a continuation rather than something like, oh, I wish I'd gone deeper there. I, I feel, I mean, the book, you've read it. It's thick, right? There's a lot in it. Uh, but I will say there's a section near the end when we talk about coordinating people or this macro level coordination. And the section there, I think in the book, it ends up being 3,000 words, which is appropriate for this book and the the point we were trying to make. But those 3,000 words were originally not half a chapter, but a chapter into themselves. And then before that, they were pushing up about 30,000 words. So fighting to become almost their own mini book. And that content will probably weave itself into a future publication of some kind. But that's where I really started exploring when you have th this problem of when you have a large group of people who all have pieces of the information, how do you create the structure, the facilitating structure to coordinate activities so you can have understanding at the end. And this is the types of problems we're talking about now are things like open source technology, scientists working around the globe to find a cure for something, right? How do you coordinate the exchange and of information, the interaction with the sharing of ideas? And so I, I think in the book, I, I, I left everyone with like, here's five, here's the a framework 
that I'm working on, but I would love to take that framework and what got, you know, two paragraphs per item in the book, you know, make that a chapter and, and explore right. that more and test that out. And so that's, that's really getting into organizational development and how do you set up organizations or large groups of people for the creation of understanding and the sharing of knowledge. And um, that's kind of where I'm at now. And um, in fact, I'm giving a talk here soon uh, at a local organizational development meetup. Totally different group, foreign to me, but I've been joining this group for about the past nine months and just been soaking up all the knowledge there and learning and bringing my own design view to things. And I'm going to be giving my first local presentation to a uh, completely different tribe of folks next month. So I'm kind of looking forward to that. That's awesome. I want to thank you so much for uh, being with me today and and talking about this. Uh, like I said at the beginning of this, we're going to do a follow-up conversation on something else that you have going on right now, and that's the Mighty Minds Club. And I think it's a good logical continuation of this conversation because it is taking a lot of kind of what we talked about and putting it into action and putting it into more of a uh, educational space. So thanks again for coming. Thank you. I'm looking forward to the next conversation. Thanks for listening to Design Everywhere. Please take a moment to subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app. We have a lot more episodes in the works. And if you can give us a rating or review, we'd love to hear what you think. Thanks to Stephen P. Anderson. You can find him online at poetpainter.com, themightymindsclub.com, and on Twitter at Stephen Anderson. You can follow the show on Twitter. Just search for Design Everywhere Podcast. That's at design underscore every. Uh, you can also follow me, Jonathan Morgan, at Promo Rock. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcasts. A uh, special thank you to our producer, Leah Longbreak, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jonathan Morgan, and this is Design Everywhere. Thanks for listening. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Calafato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.